Uh, did Pastor Kurt just say that vacation or staycation ended Friday? Because my wife and I dropped our kids off here last night, and we left. We just left. We just left them in the parking lot. So I don't know what they were doing for two hours. Oops. <laughs> Anyways, hey, you guys are super, super lucky today. Um, uh, because if I would have had my way, because I was here all week, and all the chairs were pulled out of here, right? So it was just like a free-for-all, and I thought, let's leave them out for Sunday. Let's not have any chairs. Let's do like picnic worship-style service, which would have been kind of awesome. You guys could have gotten some tummy time or something. I don't know. It just, But I totally got vetoed, and they decided, you know, no go. Let's stick you back in chairs. Slash, let me tell you this real quick. Pastor Josh will be preaching at some point. Yeah, I know. So give it up for that guy. So I wanted to give you guys... The other thing about not, you know, doing the chair thing was like, you guys wouldn't have had enough fair warning about it. You wouldn't have had time to get your blankies and, you know, your coolers and stuff. And so, but I will do this. I will give you a fair warning about today's message, okay? And the fair warning is this, is that this doesn't end so, like, wrapped up in a nice little package. Like, I'm not getting a book deal at the, at the end of today's message, okay? Like, there's no, like, you're not going to take a bulleted list of points home of, like, here's what I simply have to do to make this go a lot easier. So just a quick heads up, and I think you deserve a fair warning. Um, we're going to be looking at 2 Kings chapter 5. Um, if you grew up going to church, you've probably heard this story before. If you didn't grow up going to church, you probably haven't heard this story, and that's okay. It's the story of a guy named Naaman. Real quick survey, how many of you, when I say Naaman, you say what? Which would make kind of a cool rap song, right? Like, I say Naaman, you say what? Naaman, what? All right, very good, okay. But how many of you, when I say Naaman, you're just like, I, like, I don't know. I don't know who that is. I've never heard the name before. Um, and then how many of you recognize Naaman, right? Okay, so, so some of you may have even forgot about this story. But once I get going, you're going to be like, oh, yeah, no, I totally get that. I remember this story like from like flannel graph days. Like, we get this, okay? So it's found in 2 Kings chapter 5. If you have a Bible, cue that up. Get that queued up, 2, chapter, or 2 Kings chapter 5, um, so you can follow along with us. But I want you to watch this video here first real quick. And this video is um, about this artist named John Mark McMillan. And he wrote this song called How He loves and this video is the story the the genesis of um, this song how love can be such a non-word sometimes it loses its meaning its potency you know like I really love cheeseburger and then I really love you know like uh, sunny day and then I really love my family like they're none of those loves are remotely the same they're totally different things you know it's really difficult to write a song about love or even use the word love in a song you know because of what does it mean what does it really mean you know I'm just really excited to play, like, I love, you know, good crowds when they sing, and like, I, I like it when they feel like they're part of what's going on, you know, because to me it's not about playing perfect music as much as it's about, like, uh, almost kind of like a relationship with each other. About seven years ago, when I was down in Jacksonville, Florida, I flew down there to work in the studio, and while I was down there, we got a call that several of our friends had been in a, a really bad car accident, and, um, Later on that night, I found out that uh, one of my best friends, uh, Steve, had died as a result of injuries from that accident. I woke up the next morning, and I was uh, just really angry and confused and, and hurt, you know. And I process things through music, you know, that's just how I do um, deal with my issues. And so um, I really needed, I felt that I really needed some sort of, um, I needed to have some sort of conversation with God because I was really, really frustrated. I felt like there were some things I needed to say and 
So that's what I would do through the music, and that's really a lot of where the song How He Loves came out of, was I needed these words, I needed this conversation. I'm really looking forward to playing music tonight. I'm really excited to um, be with all the people who are going to be there. He is jealous of me. Loves like a hurricane. I am a tree bending beneath the weight of his wind. The love I'm singing about in that song is really is not a pretty, clean. It's not a Hollywood hot pink love. It's um, it's a kind of love that's willing to love things that are messy, and willing to love even the difficult and sort of um, you know, kind of gross kind of things. You know. Oh, how he loves us so. Oh, how he loves us. How he loves. That's really the kind of song I wanted to write is through this frustrating period and he could, you know, in my anger, in my resentment, and in my frustration, he could still love me through that. You know, and, and in this process of dealing with the uh, my buddy dying, and, and um, he could love me through that, and he was okay. He wasn't, you know, offended at the fact that I was angry at God. Just looking at these old uh, lyrics, you know, you think after seven, seven, seven years, but still really tough. This song isn't a celebration of weakness and anger. It's a celebration of a God who would want to hang with us through those things, who would want to be a part of our lives through those things. And despite who we are, He would want to be a part of us and be a part of our community and be a part of our family. And that's, that's the kind of love I, I think I'm talking about. So make sure to, uh, to lock that away and, and kind of keep that floating back there. The dots will connect, okay? So I'm not going to do much explanation on that. So a um, couple of quick details here before we launch into the story of Naaman. They're about the story of Naaman. Naaman is not a Jewish guy. He's actually the commander of the armors. He's like the general of the army of the Arameans. This story takes place at about 850 BC. And he actually, here's what happens. Um, he has this interaction. He has this connection with this Jewish prophet. And in doing so, he comes almost not like fully, not literally, not tangibly, but he comes almost face to face with the Jewish God. And he has this incredible transformation is this story is, is very interesting because it's a story about these two cultures coming together and totally clashing. These, these, these cultures are so different, but they come together. It's about somebody who worshiped this pagan God who meets the Jewish God and has this tr incredible transformation occur. And the reason that I chose this specific story is it's a story that addresses an expectation that I think all of us have at some point in our lives. And the expectation is this. At some point in your life, maybe right now, as we speak, you expect, maybe you're even demanding God to give you an explanation as to why he does what he does and to why he allows what he allows. There's something in me and there's something in you that at different stages in our life, maybe throughout our entire life, we feel like God owes us an explanation. God, why would you do that to me? 
God, why would you expect me to do what you expect me to do? Why would you allow that to happen to me? Why would you cause that to happen? Why would you ask me to do this? Why would you allow them to leave? Why are they dead? Why did this abuse happen to me? Whatever it is, at some point in our lives, we kind of think, well, God, I, I don't, I don't want to argue with you because, I mean, you know, you're God, but I think you need to explain yourself right now. I mean, we'd never say it out loud, would we? I mean, we would never tell anybody else this, but we're thinking, I think, I'm pretty sure you owe me an explanation. And I think one of the reasons that we go here so quickly is because this, we're not familiar with a sovereign, are we? We're not familiar with a king. We're not familiar with reign and rule. Here in this country, we have elected officials. And the truth is, we kind of treat God like an elected official, don't we? We feel like we, we got some wiggle room in there. Like there's a little bit of margin for us to be able to kind of argue with God because, you know, we, we kind of we put him there. I mean, it's, it's even in our language. And, and I don't think that this is bad language, but listen to the things we say. We're like, God, I totally... This is awesome. God, check this out. I want to, I'm going to do this, right? God, I want to surrender my life to you like we have an option. God, check this out. Would you, if you're kind of not doing anything on Tuesday, I would like to invite you into my heart like he needs an invitation. God, I'm going to make you the Lord of my life like he isn't already Lord of all, like we could grant him the right to rule and reign over anything. I mean, it's like God, we think God is only like just a, just a little bit bigger than us. Like, like he got voted in in like a 51% margin. And so consequently, it's like, God, I get it. That's probably a good idea. But before I go in that direction, before I obey what the scripture says, honestly, I just need, I feel entitled to a little bit more information. And the truth is, even though we never say this, we operate, we pray, and we respond to God sometimes like he owes us an explanation. Another reason is this. We've been to the magic show. Let me explain. I, I watched Pastor Kurt all week long here at Staycation perform these magic tricks. Excuse me, Pastor Kurt, illusions, okay? And, and there's, there's, always, there's always this. There's always that kid, it was actually all of them, that they figure the trick out. It wasn't me, by the way. It, was, it wasn't me or I think Lisa Cowden. We were standing next to each other the whole time going like, we don't get this. What is he? And there's always that kid that's like, no, I totally, I got it. I totally understand. All right, there's that kid who figures out. He's like, I know what he did, right? Like he didn't cut her in half. Those aren't her legs. Those are other legs, right? And I'm like thinking the whole time, like she has two sets of legs, what? But all the kids get it. They've seen it. They understand it. And I'm totally stumped. But in that moment, when you figure the trick out, you feel so empowered, don't you? And, and suddenly that magician, no offense, Pastor Kurt, but that magician's status is lowered a little because you figured it out. And when you figure it out, you feel empowered. You see, we've actually figured out why God does some of the things that he does, haven't we? We've figured some of this stuff out. We understand weather systems. Sometimes we can even predict them. We understand life. We get DNA and chromosomes. We understand reproduction. We get photosynthesis. That's a thing, right? Photosynthesis. We get that, right? We understand things that we have never understood before. And with that knowledge, with that enlightenment, comes a little bit of arrogance. And what happens to us is, is we as we continue to advance, as we continue to gain this knowledge, as we understand more and more of, of what God does and, and, and how he does it, with that understanding and with all of that enlightenment comes a sense of arrogance, comes a sense of empowerment. And it says, hey, since, since I get it, since I understand the trick, since I know how you did what you did, I'm actually not as impressed with you as I used to be, which is absolutely arrogant. The other thing that happens is because now that we're so smart is that we think that we don't really have to submit to the way things are because we figured them out. We can control the way things are. And with all of that, and this is just natural, we lose our sense of wonder. We lose our sense of awe because we think we've seen behind the curtain. 
We figured out how the magic trick was done. We figured out how the sculpture did that. We figured out how the computer program created that. We figured out how the watchmaker made that. But when I figure those things out, when I figure out how they did those things, I forget that that doesn't diminish their brilliance. It doesn't diminish the fact that they originated and created it. And in theology world and in the world of God and the world of the divine, we think maybe we've got some some room and some margin to, to push back, to argue a bit. Like, hey, no, you owe me an explanation. I mean, I've figured out a lot of the stuff that you've done, God. We figured out the way that you put the world together. And before I obey, and before I change, before I give up, before I get on board with this, before I embrace it, I think you owe me just a little bit of an explanation. But here's the question. What if God doesn't owe us an explanation? Because what if God is like God? I mean, what if just because we figured something out doesn't diminish who he is? What if we're supposed to stay stuck in the awe of the fact that he's like God, that he's like king, that he's sovereign, that he reigns and he rules. And furthermore, even if we felt compelled, if he felt compelled to explain himself to us, even if he's like, no, 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 I'll tell you what I'm up to here. Even if he did that, it would be like explaining to a three-year-old why they can't race in the bike race. Now I realize that doesn't make any sense to you guys right now. So I better explain myself. Okay. I will actually explain myself. What does it mean? The three-year-old can't race in the bike race. Okay. So I got a little three-year-old son. Before I tell the story though, because I need some sympathy with, I need to empathize. I need you guys to be like, oh, he's so, all right. I'll show you some pictures of my son. There he is. His name's Luke. Yeah. Everybody just go, ah, that kid is so cute, isn't he? Like he, and honestly, he gets all of his good looks from me. He is a chip off the old me. I know. Right. And uh, so we're over in Bend on vacation. Don't tell my wife I said that. We're over in Bend on vacation. And uh, at the end of the week, um, I find out there's going to be this bicycle race downtown. I'm into bikes. So I wouldn't want to go see it. So we get the whole family down there. And I'm telling, like, the, the girl at the bike shop telling me, like, yeah, it's, you know, this is what's taking place. All these people are going to be riding their bikes. It's going to be awesome. There's a little kid's bike race. So I let it out of the bag. But, hey, there's a little kid's bike race. Luke stores that away. So it comes Friday. We go down to, the, to watch the race downtown. And he's on his bike. He's got one of those little push bikes, no pedals. You just kick your feet, right? So he's on his bike. He's got his helmet on. We're watching the whole thing. These guys are like flying. They're like cruising by. They're doing laps around city blocks and they're going like 35, 40 miles an hour, like just cruising, right? And so we're down there. We're loving it. I wanted to stay to the finish, but the kids are getting hungry. So it's time to leave. So we're like, hey guys, we got to pack it up. He freaks out. He melts down. He's crying. Why? Because you said I could race in the bike race. How do you explain to a three-year-old why he can't race in this bike race? You don't have spandex on. Your legs aren't shaved. I don't, they're going, they're too big. Like what? You know? It just wouldn't, he wouldn't get it. It wouldn't make sense. And sometimes God's like, yeah, I could explain myself, but it would be like explaining to a three-year-old. I mean, don't get me wrong. It's, it's amazing that he created the human mind. I mean, we're, it's so sophisticated. We can accumulate this knowledge from generation to generation. So consequently, as more of us come along, as we become more and more advanced, instead of, here's what should happen, instead of becoming less and less impressed by God, because we've seen the way that he works, we've seen the things that he does, we know that he keeps his promises, we should actually become more and more impressed. The more we figure out about him, the more impressed we should become by him. But what if even the fact that, I mean, we've defied gravity, we've figured out reproduction, we can do things that even our grandparents could never have dreamed of. We live in this miracle age, but what if God is still like God? What if God's like king? What if God's like sovereign? What if God doesn't actually owe you? or me, an explanation. What if it's not about what? What if it's simply about who? And so this story, in fact, so many stories from from God's word remind us of this very simple, simple, simple truth that as smart as we are, as advanced as we are, God is always like God. 
And, and there's a point in each of our lives where we'll be required to say, like, even though I don't understand it, even though I may not agree with it, even though nobody else is doing it, even though I can't explain it, even though I can't predict the outcome, even though I can predict the outcome and it won't be good, the answer is yes, because God is God. All right, let me read you this story. And, and as we go along, it's going to probably start to sound familiar to you. Second Kings chapter 5. I'll just kind of read it. And then we'll talk about it a bit, okay? So um, now it says, verse 1 says, Now Naaman was commander of the army of the king of Aram. He was a great man in the sight of his master and highly regarded because through him the Lord had given victory to Aram. He was a valiant soldier, but he had leprosy. Enter suffering. Enter questions. Enter, man, I've got all these good things going for me, but I have this disease. Why? When? How, God, what's going on? So that's where this comes in here. He's got this horrible thing. He's in pain. He has this horrible affliction that will end his life in about the worst possible way. I mean, I don't, I don't need to remind you guys of leprosy, right? Let's just say having leprosy makes Keith Richards look like a Dove soap model, okay? Rolling Stones, nobody? All right, good, okay, I'll keep moving. So it says, that, it goes on to say, Now bands of raiders from Aaron, Aram had gone out and had taken captive a young girl from Israel, and she served Naaman's wife. Okay, so here's what you need to know, all right? So Aram is slightly north of Israel, and they shared this common border. They have all these little disputes. Okay, so basically what's going on is Aram is invading Israel, and they're snatching up all the middle school kids, okay? It would basically... Let me try to think of what this would be. It would basically be like, who's above us? It would be, it'd basically be like Canada and their prime... What, I don't, what do they have? Like, let's say they have a king. I don't even know what Canada... Let's say Canada has a king. It would be like their king saying, hey, army, um, go steal some middle school kids, right? Go to America and steal some middle school kids. And so Canada comes in and they start snatching up all the middle school kids to which you would think, hey... Man, there's no job security in me for that. Like, don't take the middle school kids because that's who I deal with. But actually, behind the scenes, I would be brokering all the deals. I'd be like, yes, please take this group of middle school kids because Canada has some pretty cool exports. I'd be like, if I can send them these kids, I could get chips that, you know, taste like ketchup or I could get milk in a bag or I could get Bieber, right? I don't know. But are you recording this? Because you might want to stop. I don't think we want this to go anywhere out of here. Um, I would not trade, listen, I would not trade one Robbie Orr for a thousand Biebers. Okay. Okay. So Naaman, he's the king's advisor, just one in our story. So he's like, he's this guy, he's got everything going for him. He's probably, you know, this handsome, in, in our story, he would be played by one of the greatest Canadian actors, Alan Thick, if you guys know who that is, Jason Seaver, father to Mike Seaver. Okay. So in, in our story, not this story, but in our story, Alan Fick is in it. Um, okay, so anyways, so, so one of the, so here's what happens. One of the middle school kids, they become the helper to Naaman's wife and thus actually the story of the Bible here. Okay, so it says, she ha- she said to her mistress, if only my master would see the prophet who is in Samaria, he would cure him of his leprosy. Verse four, Naaman went to his master and told him what the girl from Israel had said. By all means, Go. The king of Aram replied, I will send a letter to the king of Israel. Now, here's where the confusion begins. And here's where the plot thickens. Because the king of Aram is thinking, if there's someone so powerful, I mean powerful enough that he can cure leprosy, it's got to be either the king, because he's like the most powerful person in the region. The kings were thought of as like priests in that day. Or it's got to be somebody important in the king's court. So if I can get Naaman, my servant, to the capital city, and if I can get him in front of the king, then whoever this mysterious, powerful person is, surely they'll be able to heal my servant Naaman. So we're already dealing with expectations here, okay? And the king saying of Aram, king, he's saying, I realize this is going to cost me something. Like we're not on the best of terms with the people of Israel because of the whole junior higher thing, okay? So I'm going to load up some of the stuff that I have that's of such incredible value that when they see us coming, when they see us approaching, they'll know our intentions and, and we might be able to buy a miracle for my servant Naaman. So it goes on to say, so Naaman left taking with him 10 talents of silver, 6,000 shekels of gold, and 10 sets of clothing. That's like my personal packing list for Mexico. 
Um, verse 6 says, The letter that he took to the king of Israel read, With this letter I am sending my servant Naaman to you so that you may cure him of his leprosy. Now, you got to pause. And you got to picture this, okay? First of all, here comes this small army with several wagon loads of something, okay? They're crossing international borders. They haven't absolutely declared their intentions. Basically, people start hiding their middle school kids again. And, and they roll right into the capital city. The king gets word that this entourage has showed up from the king of Aram, and they're outside. And then they come inside. They approach the king of Israel, who's thinking, what in the world are you here for? And who or like, what could you possibly want? And, and then Naaman, Naaman gives him this letter. It's from the king of Aram. And he's not like asking for peace here. This isn't like a letter of forgiveness. Hey, sorry about all the raids and stuff. He, he wants you to heal this general, this Naaman. Verse 7 says, As soon as the king of Israel read the letter, he tore his robes and said, Am I God? Can I kill and bring back to life? Why does this fellow send someone to me to be cured of his leprosy? Now, as is all the case in all the stories, even the ones that we tell, time kind of gets compressed, right? So this probably happened over the period of a couple days, like two or three days. So, so once he reads the letter, the king of Israel, the king goes off by himself. He's probably got his, his guys with him. He's got his advisors, okay? And, and, and they're all kind of just spitballing. They're like, okay, what is going on with this letter and this entourage? And they're like, like, something's missing. There's a gap here. There's a story behind the story. I mean, why in the world would they come rolling into town asking me to do something they know I possibly can't do? I mean, no one can cure leprosy. It's never been done. And so he consults with his advisors and they are, they're hashing it out and they come up with this possible explanation. It says, see how he is trying to pick a quarrel with me. So they're going like, oh no, like we get it. I get it, right? Like, like you want war. You don't want to start the war. You're just looking for an excuse to defend yourself. You want to force us into this position. So you send all this reward money here, asking me to do something that you know I can't possibly do. And then your friend Naaman comes rolling in and, and he goes back to you and says, you know what? They wouldn't do it. They couldn't do it. And, and then you guys get all angry and then a war starts. So if you're trying to pick a fight with us by using this poor guy suffering from leprosy just to go to war, like we know what's up. So, so during all of this debate and all of this time figuring out what's going on, word gets out from the capital city and it finally reaches the prophet Elisha, who Naaman probably should have just gone to to begin with. And so the story takes kind of an interesting twist here. Verse 8, it says, When Elisha, the man of God, heard that the king of Israel had torn his robes, he sent him a message. Why have you torn your robes? Have that man come to me and he will know that there is a prophet in Israel. Have him come to me and he will know that there is a prophet in Israel. When I'm done with him, here's what's going to happen. He's going to know that there is God's man in Israel. And I'm sure the king is reading Elisha's note and he's thinking, okay, but I don't think that he came here to find out that there's a prophet in Israel. I'm pretty sure he came here to get cured of his leprosy. Which brings us to the point of this message, which brings us to the point of tension that we all wrestle with at some point, which brings us to the question of expectation and brings us to the point of us demanding answers, which is simply this. In the area of your life right now that you can think of that, that you're really throwing down with God, it's like cage match style. There's ladders and chairs and it's you and God and you're working it out. And maybe you feel like God is asking you to do something and you've argued and you've argued and you've argued, but you know in your heart there's something that God wants you to do. Or it could be that situation, that thing, that suffering, that loss, that pain, and that place where you find yourself in life where you couldn't possibly imagine that it could hurt anymore and it doesn't make any sense and you want answers. Whatever it is, here's the surprise of the story. Here's the reality of following God. There's always something more at stake than simply the, the details and the circumstances surrounding your situation and your obedience to it. There, there's always something bigger than your simple act of obedience. I mean, we've all walked through pain. And we've all experienced 
suffering. We've all had those moments where it just, we wanted the information and the details because it wasn't. I know for my life, I've been there and, and it's, it's probably the biggest thing that, that, that I wrestled with and, and I still to this day. We've got three beautiful kids. You just saw one of them and, and we love them so much and they're so awesome. We've also had three miscarriages, two between our daughter Ryan and, and Luke. And, and I remember making that decision after we had our daughter to go, let's have another one because we love her and it's just going to keep getting better. And so we're all excited. And then the first miscarriage. And then I remember the, the second time going in there and being so excited like this is, we can't wait. And I mean, all of your hopes and all of your expectations and everything that you're dreaming for is just to hear that heartbeat. And it's not there. And I remember riding home from work that day on my bike, just angry, resentful, so mad, and I just wanted to know why. I mean, sure, part of the answer is these three beautiful children that we have, but it doesn't, even to this day, still explain why we lost three other beautiful ones. And so we know that pain, right? And we know that suffering. And we want answers. And the prophet Elijah, he says to the king of Israel, send Naaman to me. Because when I'm finished with him, I mean, I mean, he might have shown up to Israel simply looking to be healed of his leprosy, but God has something way bigger in store for Naaman. So Naaman went with his, the, ver, the verse nine says, so Naaman went with his horses and chariots and stopped at the door of Elisha's house. Stop there. Now, here's what you need to know. Elisha lived way like out in the sticks, like out in the borderlands, right? Like he lived in the desolate, dusty, like kind of place that like nobody really wants to visit, let alone nobody really wants to live there. He lived at the, at the end of the long dirt road in the trailer park where like only half the neon sign works, right? Which is always where prophets live, right? And, and you can kind of imagine, like, when, when, when the people that actually do live out there, when they see this entourage of soldiers and wagons coming, and they're flying their, their flag of Aram, like, what do they naturally assume? Oh, no, here comes the Arameans. We better hide the women, hide the junior hires, hide the fine china. Here they come again, and they've got raiding on their minds. So by the time that Naaman and his entourage come rolling into this dusty little town, um, there's nobody to be seen. Everybody has gotten out of Dodge. They're hiding. They've buried things. They think that they're being raided. So Naaman shows up in front of Elisha's double wide, okay? The dust settles, and he's standing there in all of his general glory. He's the general of the army of the Arameans. I'm somebody. And he waits. And he waits. And he expects, surely, Elisha, this great prophet, the, the guy that's going to cure me, the, the, this, this prophet of the Israel, Israel, Israelite God is, is going to come out and, and he's going he's to say something amazing. He's going he's to do something absolutely incredible. And he waits. And, and then the scripture says this, verse 10, Elisha sent a messenger... <laughs> right? He sends a messenger to him. He says, go wash yourself seven times in the Jordan and your flesh will be restored and you will be cleansed. So imagine this. Here's the great Naaman. Everybody knows who Naaman is. And he's waiting at this crazy prophet's door. And Elisha doesn't even have the time or the respect to come to the door to himself. He sends his servant. Servant comes out like, hey, not Elisha, um, just his servant, and he sent you a message. Oh, great Naaman, who we all fear. Um, you're to go to, um, actually, what you, you got to, here's what I want you to do. You need to backtrack, and you need to go all the way back to the River Jordan, and you need to jump in seven times, and you'll be healed. I got to go, right? And he bolts back in. And, and here's the deal. I bet you this was not at all what Naaman was expecting. And his response to this is strange. His response to this strange idea, his response to this crazy thing that just doesn't connect. He's like, I don't need a bath. I don't need to jump in the river. I mean, I can cannonball pretty sweet, but I need to be healed. 
I have this awful disease and I want my life back. I came all the way to Israel because there was this promise that I could be healed. I went to the capital. I saw the king. I've come all the way out here. And now you want me to detour again? Like this doesn't make any sense. And so he feels the way that so many of us feel when we know God is asking us to do something that's really, really tough. Or when we're knee deep in pain and suffering. I mean, there's something in us that knows it's true, but it just seems so disconnected from reality. And it's so disturbing. And we respond the same way Naaman did. What does it say in verse 11? But Naaman went away angry. I was angry. John Mark McMillan was angry. Why did you take that friend? Why am I suffering? He responds in anger. And then he said, I, this is what we do. He said, I thought, and this is us, right? When we get angry, when we get demanding, when we take charge, I thought, hey, I went to church and I thought, I started reading the Bible and I thought, I decided to follow God and I thought, and it's like, I thought, I thought, I thought it was going to be this. And this is what Naaman is expecting. I thought that he would surely come out to me and stand and call on the name of the Lord, his God. He would wave his hands over the spot and cure me of my leprosy. So Naaman's like, well, first of all, I thought he would actually come out. I thought I would actually be seeing him. I thought this would be kind of like a big deal. I'm kind of a big deal. I thought there'd be this huge ceremony. I'd wear a white robe. There'd be some chanting. It's like a halftime show worthy kind of event, right? So he's expecting this big ordeal. I'm naming after all, and I'm going to be cured of leprosy. And, and all I get is your assistant. And, and you want me to get back on my chariot now? You want me to go to this muddy river and dip seven times and everything's going to be okay? I mean, this wasn't what I was expecting at all and furthermore it's definitely not what i deserve i mean this this isn't making any sense whatsoever verse 12 he says are not abana and farpar so he's like hey we've got water where i'm from he's you know the rivers of damascus aren't they better than all the waters of israel couldn't i wash in them and be cleansed so he turned and he went off in a rage. And so Naaman's like, wait, we've got rivers. Why come all this way? I'm not going for this. I'm not going to lower myself to this. I'm not going to embarrass myself like this. I know what's going to happen. I'm going to show up to the Jordan River and there's going to be like 10,000 people. They're just watching to make, like watching me make a fool of myself. And then word's going to get back to my boss. Like there's just, I'm not doing this. Verse 13 says, Naaman's servant went to him and said, my father, if the prophet had told you to do some great thing, would you not have done it. So his, his, basically his buddies, right? His attendants, his friends, the people that he's probably fairly close with, they're like, hey, like, let's, let, me, let me speak into your life here a little bit. Let me, let me help you kind of see this from a different angle, Naaman. And they say, if Elisha would have asked you to do some great thing, you probably would have done it. In other words, the prophet, like if the prophet would have said, like, in order to be cured of your leprosy, like go do some heroic like manly kind of guy thing, like you would have done it, right? Like if, the, if Elisha would have been like, you must climb the super high mountain and snatch the egg of the golden eagle, right? Or, or go down into the deep cave and, you know, like pluck a tooth from a sleeping giant bear, right? Or go to swim to the bottom of the ocean and grab the eye of a great white tiger shark thing, right? Or go on Oprah, right? Just do something manly. Do something like, you know, some heroic thing. Like, wouldn't you have done it? And Naaman's like, yeah, I'd do some manly thing. I'd do some guy thing. I'd do some heroic thing, but skinny dipping in the muddy river? I don't know. So his advisors say, how much more than when he tells you, washed and be cleansed? So there's value there in having community that can help you see something from another perspective. Like, what if you just looked and turned it this way? Um, and, and, uh, and they're just kind of saying, like, in other words, like, try it. I mean, it, it doesn't make any sense to us either, but try, like Naaman, like, other than your pride, other than a little humiliation, other than a waste of time, other than like you didn't bring a towel, other than getting wet, like what do you have to lose? 
verse 14 says, So he went and he dipped himself in the Jordan River seven times as the man of God had told him, and his flesh was restored and become clean like that of a young boy. And, and here's the cool part of the story. Then Naaman and all of his attendants went back to the man of God, to which I say, yeah, they did, right? Because he came out of this muddy river and his skin looked better than it did before he got leprosy. And it says, he stood before him and said, now what, what do you think he said, right? He just got his life back. What would you say? I mean, what do you say when you experience something so dramatic in, in your life, like all because you took a step and, and you did something that didn't make any sense? So here's the point of the story. Here's what he said. Now I know. Now I know. Now I know that there is no God in all the world except in Israel. So please accept a gift from, my, from your servant. I mean, he's saying, now I know something I didn't even know I didn't know. And, and in this moment of strange obedience, and in this moment of intense suffering, Naaman comes face to face with the living God, and he wasn't even looking for it. And the reason he did is because he did this crazy, unusual thing, and he took this unusual step, and after protesting, and after demanding answers and wanting explanations, finally, in his suffering, he became obedient. He allowed God to just love him where he was, and in doing so, he met the living God. So here's my point. Here's what I want to talk to you guys about. There is an encounter with God that you will never have with God until you decide to obey him, especially when it doesn't make any sense. Why? Because God doesn't owe you an explanation because God is God. And in those strange moments, like whatever it may be, there's a step of obedience that you will truly never understand who God is until you take it. And all the explanations that you were looking for on, on this side of the decision, they may not be yours until you get to the other side of that choice. Or, or, and, and this is huge. There may never be any explanation at all to why what is happening in and around your life is happening, especially when it comes to the pain and the suffering and the loss sometimes. This is that moment when your obedience, when you're okay, I'm going to trust you even though this seems crazy to me. It kind of intersects with God's love and his compassion and his faithfulness. And when it does, God becomes alive to you in a way that you could really never experience in any other way. Because the bottom line is this, God is the reason we obey God. And maybe God is the answer. And maybe it's just about how he loves us through it. We want a reason. We feel entitled to a reason. We feel we deserve an explanation. And at times, maybe you get one. And maybe it makes sense. But at the end of the day, those aren't really the reasons that we obey God. God is the reason that we obey God. And in that moment of strange obedience and allowing God to love you through it, you do things that God would, like you would never consider him doing, like have you do. You do things that you think to yourself, like I don't think God's ever asked anybody else to do this. And you step out in those moments. And I'm telling you that the reward goes far beyond the circumstances of the event. What happens to you goes far beyond the details of the pain and the suffering. Because in those moments, you have an encounter with the living God. And you may be like, I didn't even know that he existed. I didn't even know. Like there's things that I'm learning about God that I didn't know I didn't know. And you can't have that in any other way. And in those moments, all the requests and all the desire for information, it just diminishes in the light of the fact that you're being embraced by him, that you're being loved by him, obeying what he commands and being faithful to him and, and not understanding the why, but clenching, grasping, clinging to the who. The Bible is so amazing, you guys. This happened like 850 BC. 850 years later, Jesus shows up on the scene and guess what he teaches? I mean, Jesus taught some pretty strange things, right? Look at this verse. There, there's so many places that Jesus says this. Look at when, what he says in John 14, 21. He says, whoever has my commands and keeps them is the one who loves me. I, I mean, some of Jesus's commands were pretty strange. Like you look at the Sermon on the Mount and you're like, cut off what? I'm not doing that. 
Like, don't think of who or what in what way. Like, I can't do that. Or love who? I don't, I don't think that's even possible. But he says, whoever has my commands and keeps them, like, like does them, is the one who loves me. And then look at his promise. Anyone who loves me will be loved by my father, and I too will love them and show myself to them. So, so here's what many of you have experienced. There's a connection. There's this intimacy. There's an awareness of God that only comes with this kind of obedience. There's a revelation. There's an explanation. There is a revealing of. There is this aha moment, this defining. There's this reality of God and his presence. And it only seems to come in those moments, those circumstances, that pain, those struggles. When we step out with very little to no explanation or information and decide that we just need to obey him. We just need to decide to, to rest in his love, to embrace how he loves us through it. And not because we understand why, but because God is like God. Here, I'll say it again. What if God doesn't owe us an explanation? What if God is the reason to obey And the reason we obey in those moments is how he loves us through them, how he clings to us tightly through them, how his promises are never more true to us, how his compassion could never be more rich. And that pretty much changes everything. I'm going to invite my friend Nicole up here, and she's going to tell you guys her story. And I want you to just listen and, and hear. I'm Nicole Tchaikovsky, and this is my story. I was born in Provo, Utah, also known as Mormonville, USA. 90% of the population is Mormon. My family was in the 10%. I was raised Catholic. Both of my parents were born and raised in Poland, where the religion is Catholic. I moved to Corvallis, Oregon when I was five years old. I went to St. Mary's Catholic Church from kindergarten through sixth grade. I would go because my parents went. I always knew God was real, but I didn't really know who he was. I kind of just knew him as a dude with really long hair that wore Birkenstocks. I took a a break from church in sixth grade. Sixth grade was the hardest time of my life. I moved to a place that I've never heard of before, Lumberton, Texas, where my dad's new job was. My dad worked at BASF, the world's biggest chemical company. He lasted one month there. My dad was an alcoholic. Addiction has really impacted my life. My brother is also an addict. He has been addicted to various drugs throughout his life. He has overdosed a couple of times. There were and still are times where I would go into my brother's room to check if he was still alive. My dad would drink every day, including at work. I knew he would lose his job. When my dad drank, he became very verbally abusive and sarcastic, especially towards my mom. There were times where things became physical. I witnessed and gone through many things that no kid should. I wanted to get out of that town. Moving to a new place means going to a new school. It wasn't easy being the new kid. I was made fun of because kids thought I was ugly, so I didn't have very many friends. I lived in Texas for eight months, then moved back to Corvallis, Oregon with my mom over that summer. I realized my father would always be an alcoholic. I also realized I have lost my dad. I never really knew who he was. It was like living with an unpredictable stranger for 12 years of my life. I only knew the drunken side of him. Seventh grade was also a tough year. I lost all of my self-confidence. I was diagnosed with body dysmorphic disorder and anorexia. Body dysmorphic disorder is imagined ugliness. I used to look in the mirror and cry. Things with my dad weren't good either. He chose alcohol over me. I was fatherless, so I thought. I realized that I didn't have a father figure in human form, but that my father is God. God will never choose alcohol over me. God will always be there when I need him, not drunk on the living room couch. He is the best father in the whole wide world. I accepted Christ that year and have been going to Northwest Hills ever since. God has helped me discover dance, which has helped me with my self-confidence. I still think I'm fat and ugly, but I'm not going to dwell on it, and I'm not going to stop eating because food is pretty good. (laughs) Going um, Over the spring break, I went to Mexico, and it really grew me closer to God, and I could actually feel his presence, which was really cool. And when I came back to Oregon, I was closer to God than I have ever been before. 
Then came April 14th. My mom woke me up in the middle of the night crying. She told me to get up and we need to have a family meeting. We all held hands and my mom proceeded to tell my two brothers and I that dad is dead. He's dead. My biggest fear always had been losing my dad at an early age. His birthday was two weeks ago and he would have been 56. I never got to say goodbye. I never got to hug him, kiss him, or say I love you. I haven't seen him since I moved back from Texas. It had been four months since his death, but it still feels surreal. I just can't believe it. I don't want to believe it. I had a lot of hope for him. I had hoped that he would conquer his battle with alcoholism. I had hoped that we could be a family again. I had hoped that I would get to know and see the real him that I was too young to remember. I don't have many good memories with him. It doesn't mean I don't have any. The few good memories that I had with him will always be remembered the most. I know that my dad wouldn't want me to be sad. Now he is in heaven, finally free of his alcoholism. His pain and depression are gone. He's finally happy. Now I have two great men watching over me in heaven, both of my fathers. Even though he is no longer here, he will always be in my heart. Without God, I don't know where I would be today. He has helped me realize that life without Christ is no life at all. I'm living my life for Christ. I want to make my father proud. I've grown so much with the Lord. I don't judge people anymore. Everybody has issues that nobody can see. Instead of judging someone, I get to know them instead. God has us go through trials not as punishment, but to grow spiritually stronger. I am thankful for everything that I have gone through. It has made me stronger and into who I am today. I rely on God in difficult times. I have come to appreciate the bad times in my life as making me a better person in Christ. I have gained self-confidence knowing that God loves me. Nicole's uh, going into her junior year at Crescent Valley. 16? Sophomore year, excuse me. 15. Sometimes I don't call her Nicole, I just call her beautiful. Um, There's a lot of questions in that story, right? There's a lot of like, I would like to know why in that story. There's a lot of like, what are you doing? And, And her story is continuing. And we've been able to surround and, and, and uh, just see her grow as she has let God just love her through it. How she has let God just embrace her through the questions. And so many of them haven't been answered yet, and they may never. So how does he love us? Let's pray. Father, um, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the truth in it. God, that it compels and convicts us. And God, while today may not be answered easily, it may not fit into a nice little outline, you become the answer, God. You become the hope. It becomes about how in those moments where it is falling apart and it hurts like it's never hurt before where we can be embraced by you and realize that the answer lies in you and it lies in you just loving us as our Heavenly Father in a way that only you can. In your name we pray. Amen.